The reading today is going to be from Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and the mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Happy uh, Advent season. The Christmas tree is up. The candle is lit. It's lit in here, if you know, if you know what I'm saying. Come on. I didn't mean to say that so early. Um, we, we're, we're starting two things this morning. A little double start for you. Uh, we are starting the Advent season, first of all. And Advent um, is a four-week season. It's a four-week season of preparation and anticipation that leads up to Christmas. It's a season of joy and peace, and yet it's also a season of getting in touch with our longings and the things that we truly hope for. So over the next four weeks, we'll sing some Christmas carols, some of the Advent ones. We already hit you with a couple this morning. Do we have any Advent song lovers in the house? Yeah, we got a handful. We love you. But Advent is about cultivating and acknowledging, remembering our longing for light to come into the darkness. That's what Advent is. It is embracing the reality of the life and the world that we live in, the darkness. And so we're starting Advent this morning, and we're starting a new series. Hello, we're out of Isaiah, and we're into a new series that we're going to call uh, just Encounters with Jesus. 
So how do these two intermix, you might wonder. It's pretty simple, you know. But for the next two months, though, we'll just be walking through different gospel stories, different accounts of Jesus, interactions that he has with individuals, interactions that he has with groups of people. And as we do it, we'll get to see how these interactions reveal the heart of Jesus, his unique personality, his remarkable character, and ultimately his mission. And so that's where we're going to start this morning with both of these things. And we'll look at two stories that we just read and how these two stories intersect around one God who reveals himself in the person and the life of Jesus and how that Jesus, that person reveals himself in the midst of darkness, hopelessness, and pain. Are we with me this morning? Are we ready to go? Well, if you're not, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to be ready to go. Sound good? Well, Father, we just thank you for this morning. Jesus, we believe that, that in your, in your name is power, life, and living water. And for some of us, that's just a thought or a concept, but Holy Spirit, we ask that this morning you would reveal the face of Jesus to us. Reveal, r- remove all of the veils that we have that, that blind us from seeing the glory of of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we ask this morning. Amen. Amen. Um, well, I don't know about you. Sorry, I feel I'm, I'm a little, these are a little in my, in my space. You never know when I might need to get a little movie up here. Um, I, I don't know. Each person, you can tell a lot about a person by their uh, favorite form of electronic communication. Do you know what I'm saying? So, so some people love email, and if you love email, I'm judging you if that's your favorite way of communicating with people. That's all I'm saying, okay? Some people love email. There's a whole, there's a whole spectrum. There's people who love text messages. There's people who love phone calls. Some of you love letters. I've talked about you in the past. That's great, too. Some of you love voice memos. I'm a big voice memo guy. Do we have any voice memo people in the house? I love voice memos, but I'm learning that I love to send voice memos. <laughs> But I don't always love to receive voice memos. <laughs> I realized, I, I was like, I love voice memos. And then I realized people started sending me them. I'm like, they kind of stink, actually, because they're so long sometimes. I'm like, I don't have time. I just want to read it, you know? But I love to send voice memos. Um, but my favorite way of electronic communication is FaceTime. Any FaceTime people in the house? Phone calls are out. It's 2023. Nobody calls anybody anymore. You hit the FaceTime all the time. Here's why. Here's why I love FaceTime. Okay, because text messages are just so frustrating. One, I just don't like texting. Okay, if 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 you have a if I've left you on read and you're in the house tonight, let me just say I'm sorry. It's not you, it's me. Okay, because I just don't like texting. Sometimes I just get overwhelmed. Like, oh, there's so much here, and I have to sit here and think and type and text, and it's just a lot to me. Okay. Also, texting just I don't. It's just confusing. Like sometimes you just misread the situation. Like sometimes somebody will send me something, and I'm like, dude, that's awesome. And they're like. I thought you were going to be excited. I'm like, I was. Did you not read the text? You know, like, it's just hard. You can't always tell the tone or the face. I'm going on a rant here, okay? I'm sorry. Flatter me for a moment. This is why I love FaceTime, okay? Because FaceTime, you know, like, just seeing a face, it's just better, you know? Like, how, how many of you know, like, a look? Somebody, some people say a picture is worth a thousand words. I'm going to tell you a look is worth a thousand words. Like, the way you see someone's face, like, I can tell you I'm excited without saying a word. Isn't that crazy? You know, you know that, you, you, you know this, like even the expression when you're talking with somebody across the table and you're explaining some things and then all of a sudden you see their eyes kind of drift off and their mouth might be saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but what you're telling me is you'd rather be any place else in the world other than right here with me, right? Because their look on their face, the expression of their face, you're, the, the way someone expresses themselves 
says way more than their words ever can. I'm going on a riff. I'm about to come back, I promise. Because if the age-old A.W. Tozer quote is true, that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, I wonder if it's more than just the words that we think about God, but it's what does his face look like towards you? What is the expression of God? When I say that this morning, when you think about God, what is the expression of his face towards you? Not his features, but his, his countenance. For all my younger folks in the house, what's his vibe towards you? <laughs> you didn't think you were about God's vibe this morning, but we're here. But I mean, seriously, is he, is he, is he like grumpy? Is he angry? Or maybe even worse, disappointed? <laughs> Sometimes I can handle the anger of God, but the disappointment of God, <laughs> that hits a little bit deeper, a little bit different. Because what we tend to do is we superimpose our own experiences with people on to God. The absence of our fathers, the anger of our bosses, the disappointment of our friends and family, the disappointment of your parents when they tell you you can't go to Skate Castle in the third grade. Cam, we're not mad. We're just disappointed, you know? But it's what we do. I mean, that's what it is for me. I, mean, I wish it wasn't so cliche, but so often for me, it's like Coach God. Just one more rep, Cam. Just a little further. Just keep pushing that sled. Here's the line. You're almost there. Oh, the, the line moved a little bit further back. You're almost there. Keep going, Cam. Like the line is so close, but I just can't make it. I can't be all that I want to be. I can't be all that God wants me to be. And so I, I tend to see him if I superimpose all of my own natural feelings onto God with his arms crossed saying, Cam, you got a little bit more in the tank, don't you? And that's what happens because the combination of our cultural influences, our own fleshly inability to receive the love of God, and our spiritual enemy who is doing everything in his power to distort the view of God, distort how we see him and his face. And so this morning where we have these two stories that reveal the power of God, the power of God fully on display, even deeper than that, it is revealing to us a person, a person who, whose deepest longing is to actually reveal his face to us. It wants to show us the heart of Jesus seen in his face. And it's a story. They're both stories. See, because stories have a unique way of communicating to our hearts. N.T. Wright, he poses this question. He says, why do we even need the Gospels? The four narratives about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says, why don't we just need Paul's letters? Some of you, you're like some Pauline epistle people in the house. You didn't know that, but you are. Because here's the thing about the, the Pauline epistles or the other epistles, the letters, they're kind of like cut and dry, you know? Like, we like that. We like it. It's like, tell me, give me some doctrine, give me some theology, tell me how it works, tell me what God does, and then tell me how I'm supposed to respond to that thing with fact, with information. That's what the, that's what the apostles' letters tend to do. They're organized. Hello to some organization. And so why do we need, some of you are like, why do we even need these gospel accounts? Well, N.T. Wright, he continues, he says, because the Gospels show us not just what God has done, but who God is. Hebrews 1 says this, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so for us to see God, for us to see who he is, we have to look at the person of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be doing with these encounters with Jesus. It looks at the person of Jesus. Not just as a doctrine or a theology or a dogma, but as a person. 
That's the goal of the Gospels, is to show us the person of God reflected in the life of Jesus. And we have a beautiful story that does that for us this morning, and it begins with a guy named Jairus. Jairus is a successful religious leader. He's one of the few religious leaders that's actually open to this new rabbi Jesus. He's, he's a good dad. Jairus has spent most of his life generally being a good person. He does mostly the right stuff. He's provided for his family and his home. Jairus has looked out for the greater good of the community. Nobody has a problem with this guy, Jairus. He's got a dope name, Jairus. Why, why does nobody name their kid Jairus, you know? Of all the Bible names, we'd pick all some of the dorky ones, but Jairus, that's tight. I like that. But he hasn't done a lot of things wrong. He's a respectable guy until one day, his pride and joy, maybe the thing he loves most in the world, his little girl gets sick. And it starts off as something that seems minor, but then within a couple weeks, it completely spirals out of control. Medicine isn't what it is today, and so slowly but surely, this sickness gets completely out of hand until Jairus has nothing left. She's dying. And he's heard rumors that Jesus of Nazareth, the healer, was getting back off the boat and was coming back into town, and Jairus sees his life and his circumstances with nothing to do. And so he decides, I'm going to go find Jesus. And Jairus, he sifts his way through the crowd until he gets to the feet of Jesus. And with no other options, he throws himself there and says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and touch her. And I think if you do, she'll be healed. And at his feet, Jesus looks at Jairus and says, all right, let's go. And they start making their way back to Jairus' house. The disciples, this crowd of people, they all make their way. They're with Jesus. And they head to Jairus' house. But then there's this scene change in the story, and it, and it zones in, and we see a woman. We see a woman who suffered for 12 years with chronic bleeding, chronic pain. Not only chronic physical pain, but chronic emotional pain. She's a chronic outcast. Her disorder, bleeding for 12 years, is not just a physical one, but it's a condemning one. It's a demonstration of her uncleanness, her inability to enter the synagogue. The fact that she's unnamed in the story probably means that she has no spouse, no kids, and is completely alone. And so 12 years coupled with, 12 years of physical suffering coupled with a life of isolation and loneliness, that's her experience. She's gone to doctors time and time again, doctors giving her false hope, saying, I think we can fix this, I think we know this, only to be let down time and time again. And she has no choice but to just keep spending. Everything she earns, everything she gets, she puts it right back into the doctors. Maybe this time. Maybe this one. Only to be let down again and again and again until she had spent everything. They don't know what to do, but she keeps going until she has nothing left. And then it seems in a moment she recalls the same rumors that Jairus has heard. There's this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And I've been hearing stories about Jesus. I've been hearing about the ways that he's healed people and set people free. And they, she thinks, maybe if I can just touch this miracle man, if I can just get a touch of him, maybe my problem will lift. Maybe. And there's rumors, there's murmurs going around that Jesus is going from one town to the next. 
And she's so desperate that she thinks, I'm going to find my way into him. There's no other options. And so she pushes her way through the crowd, bumping into people on the ground, back up to her feet, walking until she sees his garment, his clothing. She thinks, if I can just touch him. And she reaches through the crowd and she gets a brush of his clothing. And then it happened. Something she hadn't felt in 12 years. Her bleeding stops in a moment, immediately, just like that, healed, free from her suffering. But then confusion starts to set in, shock almost, as she lays down on the ground almost to hide when she hears a voice that says, who touched me? Let's just think about this for a moment. Jesus is on his way to, to, to heal someone, to, to, to heal Jairus' daughter. And it says in the passage we just read that he felt power come out of him. That part's maybe not the scandalous part, but this is what gets a little bit scandalous. You ever read your Bible and you anticipate what it's going to say? Like you kind of think you know what's going to happen? And then you read it with fresh eyes and you're like, oh, that was crazy. It's kind of what happens here. I mean, I imagine Jesus being like, whoa, power went out from me. I got stuff to do, though. That's great for them. You know, good. That's what I do. You know, I'll be healing people. I don't even know sometimes. Just walk to the next one. Let me roll. But that's not what happens. He stops and he turns around and he says, who touched me? And we got to think about the urgency of the situation here. Jairus' daughter is dying right? And the disciples, they pick up on this. They pick up on that frantic energy, right? They're like, who touched you, Lord? We're in a huge crowd. Everyone is touching you, right? Luke says it's Peter. Peter's like, who touched you, Lord? Everyone is touching you, you know? He's like looking around. He's like, can somebody just take the blame for this, please? He does this all the time. He's never focused on where we're going. Bartholomew, take the blame, please. Get yourself mentioned in the Bible, at least, you know, do something. That's why no one names their kid after you, because you don't do anything, Take the blame. Do something, you know? Bible jokes. Thank you for getting that. I know you read your Bible if you laugh at that joke. If you didn't, the Lord loves you so much. But he doesn't. He pauses and he says, who touched me? Notice that about Jesus. The who is always more important than the what. I mean, think about this. All he notices is that power went out from him. He doesn't even know what he did. He's like, did I heal somebody? Was it a deliverance? I don't even know. He doesn't even seem to care because he's not caring about what happened, but he cares about who was behind him. Who was it that touched him? And now hear me, the, the what does matter to Jesus. And I don't want to skip past his power here because in fact, it's, it's one of the most beautiful images of seeing the ease of the power of Jesus. That he heals on accident. <laughs> you know how easy it is for Jesus to heal? Just touch his guard. That's all it was. It was a brush against Jesus. And he's like, whoop, healed you. Sorry, my bad. Didn't even mean to do that. That's how easy his power actually is. But here, it's not the focal point of the story. In fact, it's not the focal point of any healing story. Every healing, every miracle, every deliverance that Jesus does all the time, it always recenters us back to him. And right here, because Jesus, he's not content with someone receiving a blessing from his back. He won't settle with someone experiencing his glory from behind him because he knows 
that true glory can only be seen in his face. 2 Corinthians 4 says, God, who said light, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God into our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. God is passionate about you seeing the face of Jesus. Because there is power and there is freedom and there is newfound energy when you see the face, the expression of Jesus. One look is worth a thousand words. One look at Jesus' face is worth a thousand sermons. A thousand Bethmore Bible studies, a thousand Mav City bangers. They're all just to see the face of Jesus. To see his face is to see his delight in you. It's to see and savor and sit in the reality of his radical acceptance of you. I mean, he's scanning the crowd because he is adamant about revealing his approval to whoever it was that touched him. Right? We shift back to the woman and all she hears is, who touched me? But she doesn't hear it through the lens of who is speaking. She hears it through her own lens. Her own lens of shame and rejection, she hears it as an outcast. She experiences the healing, but she still carries the shame. And so she hides. Until she can't anymore, until he's so persistent that he just keeps looking around and she crawls over to his feet and just spills out everything. It says she tells him everything all about her bleeding for 12 years, about how she's not allowed in the temple, how she's a widow and broke and has no money, no dignity, no value. And that if he really knew who she was, he probably wouldn't have wasted his power on her. That it was a good thing it was a secret healing, because if he would have actually saw her, he probably wouldn't have wasted it on her. And isn't it interesting that we all do that? That we all hear things through our own lens, I mean, you've had people tell you that they love you, but sometimes you're so aware of your own unlovableness that you can't even receive it. You ever have a hard time receiving encouragement? It's because you're not hearing the words, you're hearing it through your own lens. And we do the same thing when we come to God. We hear these incredible, overwhelming promises of the way he sees us and looks at us, but we hear it through our own shame. We hear it through our own inadequacies, our own insecurity, our own failures and fear. But Jesus pierces right through all of that. He bends over, he looks her in the eyes, and he says, daughter. I said this a couple weeks ago. Acceptance directly to confront her rejection. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free. And so not, not only does Jesus look at her, looks her in the eyes, reveals his smile upon her, but then he speaks identity over her. He identifies her something, with something entirely different than her shame. He says, daughter. And so I don't know what you're experiencing this morning, but I do know you're experiencing something. Shame or anxiety or self-hatred or chronic pain. Longing. That's what Advent is about. It's about not running away from these things or fleeing from them, but looking at them, noticing them, and then inviting Jesus to speak to you. Those things that we long for. 
And over and above everything, the thing that Jesus wants to speak to you this morning is that you are a daughter. You are a son. That your identity is not who you are on your best days or your worst days, but right now, through Jesus, that's who you are. And everything in life flows from there. I mean, even Jesus, if you think about it, his entire life, 30 years, we got nothing. We don't know a thing except for he kind of scrambled off to the temple to pray one day. They were like, where is he? He's like, I'm in my father's house praying. What do you think I am? You know, like, gotcha. But we see the thing that launches him into everything he does. And I think it's meant to be a representation to us. It's a model for us. Jesus, he's baptized by his cousin John. And what is the father's voice? The first thing we hear audibly spoken over Jesus. This is my son. Everything Jesus did was out of the security of his relationship with the Father. Everything flowed from there. And it's true for us, everything flows from there. The power to be a mother, the power at work to not be caught up in everything, it all flows from your identity as a son or a daughter. Even prayer itself, isn't it interesting? Jesus, when they, when they say, Lord, teach us how to pray, the very first two words he says reminds them of who they are. Our Father in heaven. Sometimes prayer is so hard because we come as orphans. We come as, as people who feel like we're outside of the family. We want to be a praying church, and the only power as a praying church, the only power in prayer is to see yourself as you truly are in the throne room, in the Father's presence, as a beloved son or daughter. Everything flows from there. I just felt this morning I was supposed to speak some identity over us this morning. That's who you are. You are holy and blameless in his sight. You are a friend of Jesus. He no longer calls you a servant or a slave. Even Joe read that this morning in Psalm 25. He, he calls us friends. Do you relate to him that way? Do you pray like you do like when you talk to a friend? He rejoices over you. He delights over you. He even sings over you. He looks at you, not with a grimace or with disappointment or anger, but because of who Jesus is and who he made you to be, he looks at you with a smile, and he can't change it. It's his countenance towards you forever. That's who he is. And that's what he's adamant about revealing to this woman. Healing was not enough. A blessing from his back was not enough, but he had to show her that healing was great, but you're my daughter. This will set you free. But then back to the story, right? We still got Jairus. <laughs> What's my guy, my guy Jairus? Like, what is going on? This is great and powerful, but what about, what about me, you know? It's also a real experience as Jesus followers. What about me? I mean, that's what he says. He's, I'm all, I'm all for this, this healing stuff, but let's, let's go. I mean, what, I, mean, I mean, just think of the, the differences in these situations. <laughs> I mean, this woman has been struggling for 12 years. You could have done that in 30 minutes after you healed my daughter, right? Like, there's no rush there. You know, like, let's talk about the urgency. I mean, it's, imagine this. It's, it's like in an ER room. And there's a family that comes flying in with their daughter, gasping for air, turning blue, about to die. And the doctor just says, hey, hold on one second. I got this patient out here with chronic pain. I'm going to go out here really quick. I mean, that's like malpractice, right? I don't know. Probably. That makes no sense. But sometimes the delays of Jesus teach us just as much as the healings do. 
And what do his delays teach us? They, they, they teach us that whenever God invites us to wait, most of the time it's because he knows something that we don't know. There's some crucial element to the greater story that we're not aware of. It's, it's the delays of Jesus that get us in touch with our own finite understanding. They force us to take our hands off of our lives, loosen our grip, release things. And then once again, look at the face of Jesus. I mean, can you sense Jesus saying that to Jairus? Like, bro, I got you. Time, time's not a thing to me. No problem here. I mean, everyone else is freaking out. Everyone else, it's over. I mean, he gets to the place that like he blew it. Stop bothering the teacher. Leave him alone. But Jesus responds again and again, don't be afraid, just trust me. And that's what happens. They get to the house. Everyone's mourning. They're crying. But Jesus being Jesus has an entire different posture and attitude. He doesn't get overwhelmed by the, what's going on in the room, but he, he comes in and he changes the atmosphere of the room. You can almost sense his sarcasm. Even in the darkest moments, there's always an ease to Jesus. He's not nervous. He even says that. He says, why, why is everyone crying? She's not dead. She's asleep. And the people laugh at him. They go from wailing to laughing. Just a display of the human unstable emotions that we have, right? But Jesus says, all right, everyone out. And he, and he goes into the girl's room. He grabs her by the hand. And he says, Talitha kum which means little girl, get up. Literally, it's like him saying, sweetie, it's time to get up. It's kind of like I do with my little, my little kiddos. You know, I got a voice that is reserved for them. You know, I got a voice that you guys won't probably hear. You know, I don't, the bros don't hear my voice. I don't say it on the court. I don't say it when I'm working out. I don't say it anywhere else. But my babies, they get this little voice. You know, hey, buddy. Hey, sweetie. It's the fatherly voice of Jesus. He bends over. It's time to get up. This is your God. The gentle, kind, lowly one. The all-powerful, heal-on-accident one. The one who's unhurried in times of stress, who isn't in the heavens pacing around right now, Frustrated by why we can't figure it out, but the one who is seated on the throne, unfazed by the seemingly significant stresses of the day. This is our God seen in the person of Jesus, the one who calls you little boy, little girl, daughter, son, the one who has victory over death. This is our God revealed in the face of Jesus. And what's amazing about this story is there's a real compare and contrast going. And it is revealing that he is for everybody. That no matter your situation when you come in here this morning or when you approach Jesus, he is ready to reveal himself to you. I mean, look at this story. It, it, it's, it's, the, the differences are crazy. You have, a, you have a man of high class, Jairus. And you have a woman who has spent it all. You have the MC of the synagogue meetings and you have someone who is not allowed in. You have a young girl and an old woman. You have somebody who is named, important, significant, Jairus. And you have someone who has no status so much to the point that she isn't given a name. It's, there's these distinctions that are revealing Jesus' heart, his open arms to say anyone and everyone can come. 
No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, there's no one left out of the invitation of the kingdom. There is no one who cannot identify with the need for Jesus to break in. And that's what Christmas is. That's what Advent is. That Jesus comes into our world of emptiness, our world of darkness. Even the angel says it to Mary. Isn't it crazy? There is good news of great joy for all the people. The invitation from Jesus is for you this morning. And so I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know what thing you carry in here. But I want, I, I, I want to be adamant to say that the, the, the deepest need that we have is to see the face of Jesus. And he longs to reveal it to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you, you saw us in our weakness. You saw us in our darkness. That each of us have stories with you. And you don't leave us there, but you come and you find us. And God, I just acknowledge that we all have these distorted views of who you are. And so honestly, what, what we need this morning, by, by, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, we need you to heal the way that we see you. It is, it is what we need. We need to see your face this morning. Even in the heavens, in Revelation, it says that, that, that everything is with his face in view. And there will be a day where, we, where, where there's, no, there's no, no more veil, no more gray. It's just seeing your face clearly. And so, Lord, we ask that heaven would come to earth, that we would see your face. Help us to be a people who seeks your face. Bring healing, Lord. Amen. Amen.